Welcome to Woolful, a podcast for fiber folk. I'm very excited to share with you some incredible people I've had the opportunity to talk to in this community we love so much. From shearers and shepherds to knitters and shop owners, here's where you get to listen to a little part of their fiber journey. This episode is sponsored by Tolt Yarn and Wool. In 2013, Anna Dianich opened Tolt Yarn and Wool, a local yarn shop in Carnation, Washington. Most recently, she launched an online shop full of yarns, each with their own story and each handpicked by Anna. You couldn't ask for more soul when it comes to a yarn shop. Visit ToltYarnAndWool.com. Today we get to meet two amazing fiber enthusiasts, Jerome Sevilla of Grid Junkie and Sarah Higgins of Sarah in Pursuit. Sarah is a designer, photographer, and blogger based on the central coast of California. You can find her at sarahinpursuit.com and on Instagram at sarah underscore in pursuit. Her passion for knitting and thrifting is something I can surely relate to, and I know many of you will too. And with that, here's Sarah. You're obviously a maker, designer, you do a lot of different things, but what I really wanted to talk about today was your fiber love, which I know you mentioned when we were talking earlier that not a lot of people know kind of your love for fiber or interest in knitting and whatnot. Sure. Um, So I am a blogger, graphic designer, and photographer. Um, I just launched my blog in July, so it's just a little fledgling blog right now, but um, it's called Sarah in Pursuit, and um, it's been just a wonderful way for me to pursue what makes it, what makes me happy, what provides a creative life for myself, Um, share a little bit about my design work and um, what it's like to be a freelance designer. I am self-employed, so the blog is a great outlet for that. So when did you start knitting? Um, Actually, I've been knitting since I was probably in second grade. I went to this little school in uh, in my area. Actually, it's all over the world, but it's called Waldorf. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but oh, um, yeah. <laughs> it has a really unique. Yeah, it has a really unique educational philosophy, and I did that only for the first few years of school for second and third grade, unfortunately, um, because the school ended up shutting down um, near me. So, but I learned how to knit when I was in, I think it was maybe sec, maybe it was third grade. We did uh, weaving and it's interesting because I, I did that so early on in my education and I didn't really think it affected me until I became a designer. And I realized like everything that I was learning then is what I love to do now. Um, even though it was like only, you know, I was nine or something when I left that school. So knitting is like (laughs) a long time passion of mine. You know, you say you kind of started picking it up at like a young age. Did it kind of stay with you throughout your childhood? Or do you feel like there was, you know, a gap and then something that piqued your interest again that, you know, made you pick it back up again? Yeah, I think I, I would knit on and off you know, I probably knit a little bit when I was in middle school or high school, but it wasn't really like something that I did all the time. And it was always like scarves and hats and like little easy projects. And when I, when it was in my adulthood, I think I was out of college. I was kind of going through a little bit of a difficult time. And I was like, you know what? I really miss knitting. I really miss having that like tactile passion that tactile projects that I could work on and so I started I contacted a local knitting store and I said hey I'm really interested in learning you know some more complicated projects how to read patterns make sweaters and stuff like that and um, the woman I spoke to I don't even know who it was but um, she said oh you know you should speak to Corinne she does she's Uh, your age and she does these great little sweaters that fitted sweaters and stuff Um, and so I went in and spoke with her and she taught me how to read a pattern and it just took off from there we're still really close friends and it was monarch knitting in Pacific Grove and um, I just recently started working for them (laughs) so that was really fun Um, 
it's great to have that kind of history. Um, and since then, I've been knitting pro sweaters and, you know, much more complicated projects that keep my brain active. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're working with Monarch. I haven't visited their shop, but from all the photos and everything, it's definitely a place that I want to go to being in California. It's amazing. It's an amazing store. So you said that you're doing a little bit of work for them. Is that like design work or what kind of work is that? Well, actually, it's funny that you mentioned photos because um, I just started uh, doing their Instagram feed. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's been so much fun. I I mean, I don't know. I think you're familiar with my Instagram feed, but I'm oh, yeah. like obsessed <laughs> with Instagram. <laughs> and that was kind of actually what made me find my creative voice initially before I started my blog and I grew my following and um, Corinne actually um, spoke to the owner and said, Hey, Sarah has this great Instagram following and um, she, she has a really beautiful feed and you know, um, she would love to help out with ours. And they had just started. So we met and I already knew her, but we met, sat down and had a meeting and talked about her Instagram feed and what she'd want, she'd like her feed to be. And um, so I agreed to to help out. And it's been so much fun because it's like that creative outlet, um, combining my two loves of photography and, and knitting, which has been a blast. So <laughs> I wasn't familiar with them, but then all of a sudden they started like popping up on my knitting radar. Oh man, these photos are gorgeous. And then I remember you, you know, in your feed, you mentioned them a couple times. I'm like, okay, I see the connection now. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. I haven't like outrightly said on my feed, like, hey, I'm running this other feed because I kind of wanted to keep them somewhat separate. Mm -hmm. um, but I, it's just so much fun. It's a local store. So I pop in once a week the owner gave me like a little list of things that she wants to share. And then I go in and, and take pictures of stuff. And sometimes I get to bring home some of the product and do a little photo shoots, which is really fun. <laughs> That's cool. When you go take those photos, do you usually like use your iPhone or do you bring in a DSLR? Or... Um, I actually do a little bit of both. As a background, I consider myself a photographer, but I've never done it professionally. I'm kind of just getting comfortable with my DSLR. I, I mean, I've taken many classes. I took it in high school and everything, and I, I've been taking photos for a long time, but I just never really took it seriously until I started my blog. This new opportunity with Monarch has been a great opportunity for me to go to the store and bring my camera and, you know, work on settings and and just kind of practice this other craft. But sometimes I'll just bring my iPhone and do quick little pictures. iPhones are amazing in that way. Mm -hmm. I, almost all of my photos on my feed are from iPhone, like with the editing um, programs that, that are available, you can get get away with iPhone photos too. So I was just looking at this photo that you had of these little mini skeins of naturally dyed oh, fiber. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So that was, um, if you know me at all, you'll know that I like, I have way too many hands on different projects. <laughs> like I have to like <laughs> rein myself in. So another love is that I am obsessed with thrift shopping and estate sales and garage sales. And um, so I went to this great little estate sale in Pacific Grove and someone had said, you have to go to this. It was a, uh, a seamstress for um, Holman's, which was a department store in Pacific Grove, old school department store. And I was like, okay, well, obviously I have to go to this. So I go in and she has all these little like scraps of fabric and wooden handles for purses and amazing stuff like tapestries. And I, of course I went nuts. And um, <laughs> like one of the most treasured things that I found that day uh, was just this like little plastic box that had these hand dyed samples of um, yarn and I'm guessing it was just for some embroidery project or something but they are all like labeled with little cute little typographic labels <laughs> it was like 
perfect melding between yarn, love, fiber love, and graphic design. And so I, I bought it, it was like a dollar, um, and framed it. It's a new little treasure of mine up on in my studio. <laughs> That's so great. And it was all like onion, onion skins and you know, random, I can't even remember off the top of my head, but these diff, like natural dyes that they use. It was really cool. Yeah, when I saw that photo and then you said that you found it at a state sale, I resonated with that feeling of like having these finds, <laughs> but then also severe uh-huh. envy. I'm like, oh, I got to find more of those sales. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've uh, I've been starting a another project that um, I won't go into it too much because I haven't really developed it too much. But uh, I've been working on an inventory, I guess you'd say, of products. Um, mm-hmm. And so every time I see an estate sale or a thrift store, I'm I'm actually kind of like a regular at the thrift stores near me. <laughs> so they're going to start being like, uh, oh, she's back. A couple weeks ago, we were driving through this little um, town called Nicasio in Marin. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I always have this dream that I'll like stop at some, you know, antique shop on the side of the road and... there's some old woman in the shop and she won't be like trying to charge top dollar you know she'll very much about the story of the pieces and you can find some good deals there and I always I mean we stop at a lot and it's never the case but this one shop that we stopped at it was this tiny little one room building very small like not even 20 by 20 feet and both doors were open it was a sunny day and I walk in it's just full of all these adorable treasures it was so well naturally curated like it had there she wasn't trying to do anything to it but it just naturally was just had all these incredible finds and I'm walking through the building and I look at I look like at the top of this shelf and it's like covered in cobwebs and there's this old yarn winder I flipped out I wouldn't use it to you know wind any yarn now just because it's yeah I just want to preserve it but yeah I looked at my husband I was like if every weekend could have something like this, I would be the most happiest person in the whole world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that sounds like an awesome find. Actually, I found um, a few uh, hand-knit sweaters. And every time I find them, I'm like, wait, okay, there's no tag. This is clearly vintage. But, like, it's obvious to me, like, someone who knits, it's kind of obvious that it's a hand-knit item. You know, Mm -hmm. there's just that, like... It's not like there's any flaws. It's just that quality that you find with hand knit stuff that um, it's so much fun finding this. And I'm just, I, I, I want to know who knit it and, mm-hmm. you know, who they knit it for and why it's, why it's ended up here. And, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of fascinating. <laughs> Wouldn't it be incredible if these types of finds had stories that we could tell? Oh, yeah. That would be awesome. Wish you could track it down. I found this one like great like fisherman sweater from um this random church rummage sale down the street from me. And I'm like, okay, well obviously I have to get this. <laughs> I think there's a few little stains and stuff on it, but still it's a treasure, you know? Yeah, for sure. So what are you knitting right now? What do you got in your project bag? I have a couple of hats that I'm working on just for fun. Um, I always like having a couple of projects, like one that's really challenging and one that I can just turn my mind off and just knit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes I'll find I'm like, Oh, oops, I went too far. <laughs> like I've just been knitting so much that I didn't even notice where I was in my project. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm about to cast on, uh, or Jared flood cardigan, uh, the channel cardigan. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I'm really excited about that project. I mean, it's a gorgeous cardigan, a super classic cardigan with like a little belt. I'm doing this in, in like this beautiful um, maroon alpaca material. So I'm really, really excited to see it come come to life. <laughs> Have you knit a Brooklyn tweed pattern before? No, I haven't. And uh, when I printed out the pattern... <laughs> I was a little surprised when it was 18 pages long. I started uh, looking at it and I'm like, okay, how do I approach this? I'm used to patterns that don't have enough information. And this one has like 
more than enough. And so I'm like, okay, well, I need to like weed out the stuff that I don't need to know right away Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that I'm not like overwhelmed with how much I need to know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When I started knitting sweaters, I started with Kim Hargraves. You have to learn like a whole different way of reading a pattern because she's, it's, it's, they're kind of challenging. Um, And so I started with hers and I've done you know, probably like three or four of hers. And then I hadn't really done any other really complicated projects besides hers. So now it's like a whole other mindset, I guess. I have to kind of like relearn how to read a pattern. And because I think every pattern um, designer does it differently, you know. For this podcast, I'm talking with designers. I remember before I really started talking to them, I was like, oh, am I just going to ask them all the same questions? Like, how can I make my conversation with them more unique? And it's really funny because I should not have even had to worry about that at all. Of course, there's some questions that are similar, but every designer has a very mm-hmm. unique approach and little mm-hmm. idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a few of the Brooklyn Tweed gals that design. I don't know. It's been really cool to kind of see the process, but then how they all come together for a collection under a certain brand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see your channel sweater. So tell me a little bit about the fiber that you chose to knit with and kind of what made you choose that. Well, <laughs> I I don't know why, but I'm completely obsessed with maroon right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started that way. Monarch just started carrying Woolfolk, yes. this new line. It's amazing. Um, and of course, I'm like, oh, maroon. I'm like, I, I got to get this. And then I realized it would be like $200 or something <laughs> to knit mm-hmm. it out of that. I'm like, okay, that's a little bit out of my price range. Um, and then, of course, I went to other alpacas. And, you know, it was like... For how much yardage you'd get and the price per skein, it was like just another out of my price mm-hmm. range. And of course, off the top of my head, I can't remember which one I decided on, but it was really reasonable for alpaca. And so, yeah, so I just was like, okay, well, I have to look for for a cardigan like that. I don't want it to be super itchy. You know, I wouldn't really wear like a turtleneck under it, so I can't really prevent like some itchiness. So I wanted to do something, something out of wool, but you know, something a little bit softer. So that's kind of what the decision boiled down to how soft it was and the color. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I did the swatch and it's just a dream to work with. I wish I could remember what it was off the top of my head. I can't remember the brand, but I'll share it when I (laughs) get started. For sure. Every knitter has a different journey around how they become better at their craft. One of the things personally that I struggled with, I don't want to say adapting to, but accepting that I needed to do was swatching. Back when I first started, I never swatched. And then I was making all these hats too big, too small. Needless to say, before I started knitting sweaters, I really got into the swatching. But how was swatching for you? Well, yeah, I totally agree. Whenever I start a project I'm like oh I can't wait to just dive right in and then I realize I'm investing time and a lot of times like a decent chunk of change on these mm-hmm. sweaters so I'm like I can't just go at it like oh yeah I'm just gonna dive right in and hope it comes out because then you've invested like six months of your life and you have a sweater that doesn't fit you I've forced myself to start doing swatches and being much more careful about them when it says, oh, you have to block the swatch and then wait for it to dry (laughs) (laughs) and then do the gauge. I'm like, oh, really? (laughs) Blocking itself is another thing that I actually have a vest that is completely done. It's been done for over a year. I don't want to put it together. It's been blocked and I haven't (laughs) sewn it up. Like really, oh, I mean the finishing. It's so ridiculous. Like it's yeah, the finishing. It's just I don't know. I guess that just means that I really enjoy the process sometimes more than actually wearing the <laughs> sweater or whatever the project was. Finishing is another one of those things that I had to embrace. I totally have to psych myself into it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm into um, projects that are knit in one piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those, those are great. <laughs> um, I just finished a sweater. Um, Antrors from the book Journey. I knit it in this like gorgeous green, lush forest green color. It was knit in one piece. So that was like, woohoo, yay. And it was a super easy knit. Oh my God, I just love the sweater. 
I'm actually wearing it right now. You know, as you've embraced knitting more and and began to really express your love of knitting, what is some of your favorite notions or tools or books that you've started collecting that continue to inspire your craft? Hmm, that's a, that's a good question. I have almost all of the Kim Hargraves books. I actually started knitting um, her projects before I became a graphic designer. So I would look through these books and I'm just like, oh my gosh, the way they were styled and you know, um, the photography in it is, is really beautiful. Um, I really loved the Journey book. I haven't really been buying too many books lately just because I'm, I I feel like I'm like constantly, I just constantly like acquiring stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And I, so notions I have almost, I would say I have almost all of my needles and I kind of go back and forth between bamboo and Addy turbos. Mm -hmm. I really like Addy's. They're so easy to knit with. Yeah, I mean, it's just been over time. I've I've collected a, a ton of different stuff. And uh, my friend, Corinne, she's been working for Monarch for, gosh, like I think over 10 years now. And sometimes she'll be like, hey, Sarah, come over to my house and I'll just give you a bunch of yarn. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and she has like cashmere and gorgeous stuff that she's just like, yeah, I'm never going to knit with it. So there you go. <laughs> Oh gosh. So I have like two huge Tupperware containers of yarn and it's like, okay, I'm going to have to figure out what to knit with this stuff. And the funny thing is I told her, I'm like, well, Corinne, I really, 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 really appreciate that you give me this stuff. I like, I'm, I can't believe that you're so generous, but you're like one size smaller than me. (laughs) (laughs) She gives me, she gives me enough for like, the sweater that she was going to knit, which is not enough yardage for like the one size up. <laughs> ah. So I'm like constantly trying to find extra skeins of the same stuff. One of the last things that I wanted to ask you about was as your daily job and creative endeavors center around a lot around your design, do you feel like knitting has somehow influenced your design aesthetic or like how you design or vice versa? I can't say that Knitting has necessarily influenced my aesthetic for graphic design, but I can't imagine myself as a creative person without one or the other, Mm -hmm. you know? So I definitely think that my aesthetic that Mm -hmm. I've developed from studying design does influence my knitting much more than the other way around. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like I said, I, I don't think I could be one without the other. It's just, it's such a, um, knitting is such a aesthetic thing that, um, you know, color choices and fibers. And for me, it's like the perfect tactile outlet from being at my computer all day. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of different design jobs over the years. And I think the amount of creativity or creative outlet that I have from each of those varies. And Mm -hmm. knitting's always been able to supplement that. And it's funny, there definitely have been times where I'm like, okay, design and knitting, you two are going to work together and we're going to make something happen. (laughs) Whether it's me, I don't know, designing some kind of branding for something or personal endeavor Mm -hmm, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. But I don't know, like I think probably subconsciously, even in our color choices or minimalist approach, you know, or how we gravitate towards pattern, you know, Mm -hmm. actual like patterns in knitting, um, or even how we read patterns, kind of how our designer head mm-hmm. probably thinks about those things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when you, I mean, for me, when I approach a pattern, I always, uh, I don't know, I guess, translate it into how I would um, best work a pattern. Mm-hmm. So like, I have my notebook that's next to the pattern or whatever, and I take notes, and then I'll like, write out, like where I am and stuff. And it's kind of a similar approach. So when I'm doing graphic design, I, a lot of times will um, sketch out stuff. Um, no matter where I am in the process, I'll just kind of have a notebook sitting next to me. So it's, I guess in that way, they're similar. 
I, I would love to actually like design for knitting patterns or yarn companies. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> oh, you should. I just started <laughs> diving into that world. Gosh, talk about intimidating. There's definitely a learning curve that goes alongside with the creative. And I am mm-hmm. so far from being an expert in it. But the one thing I've heard from every single designer that I've talked to says, just decide, okay, I'm going to design it and then just do it and it'll kind of uh, follow the path that you make for it. So I was thinking about the learning curve. I, I did some work for Chronicle Books mm-hmm. and I went from packaging designer who worked mainly in Illustrator to all in design, designing books, which is like, you know, you do the the basics, like the cover and what a chapter opener would look like. And then the rest of it is setting type. And -hmm. I can imagine doing a pattern would be super intense. (laughs) Like designing a book would be intense. Mm -hmm. Lots of, lots of math, though. I have heard there's two schools of, or two directions that I've learned at least so far some designers do all of that themselves like the uh the sizing and adapting the pattern to different sizes and then also some design the initial sample and then hire a tech editor to do that Mm -hmm. i think i'm going to start with the tech editor route myself just because i have such limited time Mm -hmm. i don't know as much as i want to do all the math and and i don't know a purist in that way i like to do a lot of like you said earlier i like to have my hands in a lot of different creative pots yep (laughs) and there's never enough time (laughs) never for this week's man on the street i asked a couple of fiber enthusiasts to answer the following question what is your favorite vintage or thrifted fiber related find and what made it so special here's what they had to say Hey, this is Melissa Stida. You can find me on Instagram as hey underscore lady underscore hey and hey lady hey on Ravelry and Etsy. I wanted to share with you my favorite fiber related thrift find about 10 years ago in Carborough, North Carolina. I rescued my favorite vintage embroidery piece. It's about two by three on simple cotton. It's a very simple picture of a mama's ear and a baby deer. It looks as if the person didn't finish it completely. Maybe when they were working on it, they weren't very confident in their embroidery skills. And everyone who comes to my house kind of looks at it and wonders, why do you have this? And why do you love it so much? Pieces like that are usually my favorite. They may not be full of technical skills, but you can really see the artist's hands and tell where they kind of went off path a little and made it their own. Those pieces that are really my favorite, whether they're lumpy and bumpy hand-spun yarn, not so perfect embroidery or, you know, knitting that's not so perfect. Any fiber-related projects that aren't perfect are usually my favorite. This is Barbara calling from Calabasas, California, and you can find me on Instagram at Sticks and Strings. So my favorite vintage thrifted fiber-related find is I love textiles. So going through thrift shops and antique stores and finding spools of uh, yarn or embroidery threads or lace and also small hankies and things like that. Those are some of my favorite finds and I like to incorporate them into projects that I'm making, whether they be knitted projects or embroidery projects. And a runner-up would be buttons. I love vintage buttons and just those details that help to add something special to a project and also tell a story because all those little pieces of history that you add to something to make it special and that's what I love the most. When it comes to recycling, I'm not sure I've met a more intriguing ambassador than our next guest, Jerome Sevilla. Several years back, he began sourcing all of the yarn he knits and designs with from knitted garments he thrifts or finds, and he's become quite passionate about sharing his experience. 
You can find him at gridjunkie.blogspot.com and on Instagram at gridjunkie. And with that, here's Jerome. I am really, really fascinated about your journey to becoming a knitter and kind of how your interest in fiber and textiles started, but also about this whole recycling yarn and using it. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your journey into the world of knitting and textiles and and all that? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, it was actually pretty accidental. Um, If there's anything that anybody has learned about me from knowing me, it's that I'm a very kind of spontaneous, unfettered kind of person, and I just do whatever I want. And that's basically what happened with knitting is that uh, I found the tools and the, the materials to do it, and I just did it. Um, I initially started with crochet, which was really easy to pick up, and it was kind of like a like a gateway drug, if you will, uh, into knitting. And uh, ever since I picked up knitting, uh, I had never gone back to crochet. I haven't crocheted anything uh, since I first started, but that was my initial like gateway into knitting. Um, and that just happened out of you know curiosity. The whole the whole thing, like I, I found the the. Um, like the knitting needles in my mother's stuff and it just happened to be around the house and um so like uh, this is the internet age so i pulled up youtube and i looked up how to do it and uh it was just kind of uh, all downhill from there really it's amazing how much you could learn from the internet these days and it was within a matter of uh maybe three months until i was consistently knitting every day and uh, really committing to the craft it took me about three or four months or something like that and to really just get into it and really realize that I loved it. But that's how that started. It was just a really, it's a really spontaneous kind of thing for me. So I've seen through your Instagram that not only are you a knitter, but you're very into textiles and different stitch patterns. And yeah. how do you spend your day in fiber? I, I usually just stick to a really tried and true kind of like schedule of like what I do every day because like it, it's really important for me to to do the creative thing, whatever it is, uh, every day, like every single day you have to do it. You have to, it's like those Kung Fu movies when, when they go through that little montage and they're just like practicing and practicing and, you know, beating up the dummies and everything. It's a really important part of it of craftsmanship in general that you do it every single day and just like master the craft and so I follow a strict schedule um in which you know I get up in the morning make the coffee bang out the morning knitting and then boom my knitting's done like I I just need to get through some knitting in the morning and I'm okay if that knitting stretches out into the afternoon then great uh otherwise I will always be knitting something and then if I feel like changing into uh, the Sashiko um, project that I'm working on, then I will. But uh, there's no pressure on that because that's a, um, that's a personal project. Mm-hmm. And the knitting is something that I do for my Etsy shop. So that's why the knitting really needs to happen every single day is because that shop production needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, like I'll just – I'll start it in the morning – and if I'm not in pain by the afternoon, I'll just keep going, <laughs> really. But yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit more about this Sashiko work that you're doing, how it started for you and, and what you're working on right now. Initially, I had looked up stuff on the internet where I was looking at what's called boro, which is like a vintage fabric uh, that's that was made like way back in the the Meiji period and the, the Edo periods in which the poor peer, poor people of Japan would mend and make do, is, which is what we call it now, which is to, you know, use patchwork and use uh, reinforcement stitching on clothes to extend the life of them. And over the years, these uh, sort of heritage textiles were passed down from generation to generation, not necessarily out of some sense of of um, heirloom qualities, but just out of necessity that they were poor. And I really connected with that because, you know, my family was poor. We didn't have anything for the longest time. I remember when I was young, 
and uh, we had to save a lot of things. So I like I really made a connection with that. And when I read more about Boro and about how it was just essentially recycled fiber and recycled textiles, then I instantly made a connection because recycling fibers and textiles is just a major part of my work. So uh, the more I got into it, the more I realized that I was more interested in the sewing and uh, the construction, as well as the deconstruction of, of recycling materials. And there's just this kind of uh, drive that I have for it. It's really kind of hard to explain without it kind of so starting to sound like artist because like it starts getting artistic after a while because I'm thinking of something like physically, visually demonstrating my thought processes with the fiber and the textiles. It's kind of difficult to explain without me sounding like a crazy person. <laughs> no, I, I love the crazy person. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you got to be driven by something, I guess. But yeah, I started getting into that uh, just just out of curiosity and again, empowered by the internet and all the information that we could just derive from it and just looked at what I could do and, and just did it. And uh, the linen pieces that you could see on my Instagram feed, they're actually my shorts and pants that I had been holding on to uh, they're 100% linen, so they've lasted since, like, I've had them since high school. I'm in my 40s now. It's crazy because they're at this point where where the fibers are so well-worn and overwashed and super soft that they have this magnificent uh, feel to them and drape. So I really wanted to save it somehow, so I decided to work on it in, in a Boro Sashiko kind of fashion. But that's where I am with that. And that's really the only project that I have in Sashiko. It's incredible. I've just been, you know, looking at the photos that you post intermixed with all your knitting photos and feel like it's been popping up a lot more and more in my Instagram feed. I love doing anything, you know, with my hands and particularly I'm fascinated by hand sewing and hand quilting and hand stitching because, and I think you could probably resonate a lot with this, but there's makers and then there's makers that are driven to be purists in their craft. And I think any person that expresses their creativity, no matter how they do it, is amazing and incredible. But I'm really drawn to those that, that don't just grab fabric from the store and stitch something on their sewing machine, but that actually take the time and passion and energy to invest and do something by hand. My great-grandmother hand-quilted quilts for many, many, many years. Um, she's since passed away, but I remember when I was in my teenage years going to her house and she just had so, so many hand quilted pieces. And I keep telling myself, someday I'm going to do that. Someday I'm going to quilt. It'll probably be the only one I ever make, but I'm going to do it by hand because I don't know, there's something about that pure, you know, unadulterated, non-machined thing. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great commitment too. I mean, like if you look at the longevity of some projects, I mean, I've had knitting projects that have lasted like nine months. So really it's just a question of, are you committed to doing this thing, this hard thing that's going to produce this magnificent piece at the very end? Are you going to mm -hmm. commit to that? Mm -hmm. And not, you're right. Not very many people do. I mean, I think if we were to take knitting as an example, I mean, if you look up knitting on the internet, all you see is like worsted, bulky, chunky, worsted, worsted, chunky. And the reason for that is because it's easier. I mean, more people are doing it because it's easier. So, uh, I mean, the craftsmanship is there. Yeah, sure. But I mean, if you were to take the time to do something at a higher gauge, at a higher resolution, so to speak, uh, it would be more beautiful. It would demonstrate your craftsmanship better. It would represent knitting much better. Uh, and that's why I tend to do it more often is that not very many people are doing it for one thing, but also because it's a good thing to commit to, uh, because the end result will still represent your brand, you know, when it comes down to it. Mm -hmm. And I've never been much for chunky. <laughs> I don't know. I like chunky. I just, I don't know. No, I know what you're saying. I, I was just having a conversation with Gal earlier this morning and, and we were just talking about how it's very interesting people's journeys as knitters oftentimes the seed is planted as a child and then as you go through your life 
you know, maybe you're not actively doing ding or, or whatever craft it was that was introduced to you when you were young, but, you know, you develop these character traits as you get older, like patience and being dedicated to mm-hmm. something and commitment and follow through. And, and then as you get older, if you reintroduce to that or you decide to pick it up again, how it's a very different approach. And I think oftentimes when you really start knitting, you are introduced to big needles, chunky yarn, because it is a quick it's a quick knit. It's an easy thing. And, and I myself did that. Mm-hmm. And and even from time to time, like, you know, if I'm knitting a little baby hat, I'll do that. But it's much less about the time and now much more about the end fabric. What is the texture of that fabric? And I'm very, very, very drawn to woolen spun fiber. And I, it just fascinates me, the different textures. And I used to be so intimidated by knitting with fingering weight. Now I'm like, give me some more of that. Like, I'll take it. I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And if you'll notice, like, uh, I don't know if it's the same for you, but like, I've noticed that for me, it's, it's just easier on my fingers like the stress on my muscles is is less when I'm doing like fingering and lace weights. I don't get sore like when mm-hmm. I work on fingering and lace weights. Like whereas uh, with with worsteds and bulkies, you're really just you're going through a lot of muscle motion because you're manhandling these fibers that are just or these yarns that are just really big and uh, getting them around the needles and finagling them around with the needles is it's a lot more stressful. I've noticed. So like I have a tendency to to just do it because it just doesn't it doesn't cause pain for me later. <laughs> I don't know. Is is it the same for you? It's funny that you say that cuz I so I've been pretty obsessed lately with this yarn. It's Cormo mm-hmm. and it's like the softest yarn I've ever knit with and I'm soft with still that dense wool like characteristics. I just finished this scarf. I knit it the whole drive to Idaho. And as you're talking right now, I'm like, yeah, there's a a texture and and something that I love about it. You're definitely right about how you get more tired. Like your hand, you can feel it in your hands. Yeah. Yeah. I knit a sweater for myself out of all Brooklyn Tweed loft, which is the fingering weight. You're right. Like I remember I just knit and knit and knit and knit that. I didn't even think about the fact that it was so thin or, you know, that it was taking me forever is because it was, I don't know, more lightweight, I guess. Yeah. When you think about if you were to have clocked your stitches per hour, I would imagine that your stitches per hour would have been higher. Because for one thing, it's finer, it's a finer fabric, but also because it's less stress on your hands, so you end up knitting more. So in a sense, it's it's much more efficient to do like fingering weights uh, in terms of the end product. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to knock worsted or anything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, because it has its place. I did a sweater in worsted and it, I love it. It's great. Um, and my hats in worsted uh, are some of my favorite hats. It's just... I think what I'm getting at is the doing of it Mm -hmm. is there's something to be said to be doing hard things, I guess, is what it is. And I've always been one to do hard things. So with knitting, that was was definitely a thing for me was but also because uh, I was going to mention this before, but like I live, you know, we live in California. So it's not like we get like super insane winters where we need worsted weights all the time. (laughs) And uh you know, I mean, like, we've had some really, like, totally lame winters. I mean, come on. It didn't even get that hot or get that cold last year. Probably won't get that cold this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that uh, there's the necessity of it. Just simply isn't there for me to make chunky knits. It's just if I lived in Montana, maybe, yeah, sure. Or, like, Idaho, for that for that matter. Because mm-hmm. it looked freaking cold in your picture. It looks freaking cold. It is so cold. And it's funny because I'm originally from Seattle, I moved to the Bay Area a year ago, and uh, we've gone home and visited it a lot. And I didn't really, I mean, I knew it was fall and I was excited for it, but I didn't really think about how cold it was going to be. And I had just finished knitting my husband this sweater, and I was like, okay, this will be the Idaho sweater. I got here yesterday, and I stepped outside. Oh my gosh, I am so not prepared for this. I'm so glad that I'm a knitter because (laughs) now I'm going to put all those things to use that I've been like stocking up. I just want it to be like more cold so I could knit more, I guess, Mm -hmm. and be more, I don't know. But at the same time, I'm kind of, I'm so thankful to live in California just because like I I don't have to knit, you know, those bulky things. It's... Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
It's funny too, because yesterday, this is the spontaneity thing that, that I had mentioned before. I bought a rigid heddle loom yesterday. I've, I've been really wanting it and I had made a huge sale uh, like last week or something like that. And so I could finally afford a rigid heddle loom. So I ordered one yesterday and I had been reading about it. And those hard things just like are kind of creeping in because now like I, I did the research and I, I bought uh, what I needed to, to make like fine uh, fabrics on a rigid heddle, which means you need to get a second heddle, a second heddle kit to attach to the loom and all of that stuff. But like I, I researched it and everything. So I'm kind of excited about that. I can't wait to see. Weaving has been one of those things. Okay, Ashley, you don't need any more on your plate right now, even though it looks really awesome. <laughs> and so I've kind of been oh, like putting on. it off. I know. I know. <laughs> My friend Annie, she's a knitter designer and she lives up in Humboldt County. And we're just visiting her um, like a month ago. And we were in the guest house and I went upstairs and there was this huge loom. Oh, God, I'm so envious for floor looms. That's what I really want. Well, not the big, gigantic ones. The one I'm looking at is called um, David by Louette. Okay. And it's kind of like this medium-sized, smaller floor loom that looks really cool. It looks like it could still fit through a doorway, mm -hmm. uh, which is what I like about it. So it kind of looks like an arcade cabinet in a way in the size of it, but a little bit shorter. But it's so cool. It, it's just... If I had that, I would do so much stuff with it. I know. It's like a computer, like the mm -hmm. the price point. It's like a brand new Mac. Yep. And I need a brand new Mac. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how the rigid heddle goes. And if there's profit in that, I'll be able to afford it. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And it's it's funny because I have to start uh, researching like those price points too for, for something like that in, the, in an Etsy shop. I haven't even, haven't even done market research for pricing for like a woven scarf. So I don't even know. I just wanted to do it, so just went for it. I love it. I definitely plan on getting into it at some point. I think my, you know, we live in San Francisco, and we live in a tiny little junior bedroom apartment for my one-year-old, and my wool is pretty much taken over a majority of the house already. I've started to get into the natural dyeing, which takes up more space, and then it's just... Oh, yeah. Okay, I need to... Outside space. Yes, I need outside space, so... Yeah. In time, in time, and I'll, I'll watch your journey, and then I will, it'll probably tempt me more, and then, what do you know, I'll probably get into it, too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's not that big of a commitment. Like, the, my bill came out to about 450 mm -hmm. I believe is what, what it was, for everything that I needed, which included, because you need to get the stand, otherwise mm. you, it's going to be hell on your back. Mm. So, like, okay. that adds, like, 100 to $200 to, depending on which loom that you get, that's, like, a good hundred dollar chunk that gets like stapled on there mm -hmm. but um 450 is is not it's not a bad entry not at all it's not bad it's sort of like um it's sort of like that interpretation uh in that movie ratatouille that anyone can cook it's not necessarily that anybody can become it's not necessarily that everybody can be great it's just that greatness can come from anywhere basically and for me like i mean it was just a question of selling three things and i was there so i had to commit to doing good work and getting to a certain point to afford this kind of entryway into weaving which i've wanted for a long time so i mean in terms of wanting it i think i score pretty high i really want it you mm -hmm. know? <laughs> just kind of getting completely retarded sitting here waiting for it to arrive in the mail and i'm just i just really want to do it i love that <laughs> Okay, so do you plan on using, you know, your recycled fiber for your weaving? Yes, absolutely. I got a ton of the cotton that I don't know what the heck I'm going to do with. I really don't know what to do with it. I could knit with it, but I really don't want to. It's not the fabric that I want. I want woven cotton mm -hmm. and knitted wool, if that makes any sense. I guess I'm a purist. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> or even linen, but I don't have any linen yarn, but I have a lot of cotton and I want to weave it. Definitely recycled. That's a perfect segue. I really want to hear about your process around recycling yarn. I'm imagining based on our previous part of our conversation around Sashiko that a lot of the motivation 
to use recycled yarn comes from the same place. But I don't know, tell me a little bit about how you got into using recycled fiber and kind of what your process is around using it. Mm, I started knitting in 2009. And uh, at that time, down in the South Bay, we had only one LYS. I think we had two. One of them was Bobbin's Nest in Santa Clara. And the other one was Green Planet, I think, in Los Gatos. And um, I visited these stores as a new knitter. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to need to buy yarn, I guess, right? So like I go down to the yarn store and these price points were just ridiculous. They were just completely ridiculous. If I were to like knit a scarf, it would cost me, you know, upwards of 78 bucks. I was like, screw this. I looked up on the internet, you know, what can I do? And recycling yarn was one of them. And so I thought, okay, sure, I'll, I'll try this. I looked it up, took all my notes, and then went out and tried it. And it was like a huge success. As a matter of fact, the, the sale that I made just recently to buy my weaving loom was from one of the first uh, sweaters that I recycled. Cycled. And at that time, I wasn't taking, I wasn't documenting my process or anything. I only took the picture of the yarn when it was finished and completely done. I didn't take pictures of, you know, while I was unraveling and all that, which I love to do now. But uh, it's funny because that was like one of the first sweaters I ever recycled. And it was my sister's sweater dress from The Gap that she was getting rid of. Uh, and I asked her if I could have it. And it was totally easy. The recycling process. That's so awesome. It was so <laughs> easy. Basically, what it translated to was if you have the time, to unravel an, an entire sweater, it'll save you so much money. That sweater dress didn't cost me anything. But at that time, I was buying sweaters and knits from the flea market for a dollar a piece. A dollar for like, you know, a sweater's worth of alpaca or a sweater's worth of silk, which is the silk that I'm using with the linen and silk sashigo project that I have on my Instagram. That's recycled from a Jane Barnes silk top. And the silk is just amazing in terms of quality. It's just crazy amazing. It's a multi-strand structure, but it's so strong and it's so light. And the color is just kind of through the roof, consistent. Uh, and it's really professional looking. And those kinds of little discoveries of quality were just hard to pass up. Mm -hmm. I have never bought yarn ever since I started recycling. And I still have the yarn that I did buy just sitting in my stash. I've never used it. <laughs> so recycling has been, you know, I love it. But I guess I have the time to do it. Yeah. I've seen a few people that have played with it, but you're definitely, your dedication to it has been outstanding in everything that you do. You know, there's a passion behind it and, and that drives a lot of what you do, which I think is great. How do you deconstruct a sweater? Uh, it depends. I think I've been getting a lot of wool. How can I put this? Uh, oh, you know how like on uh, the Discovery Channel and History Channel, they have these shows about people that just go out and they pick things, garbage, mm -hmm, whatever, mm -hmm. and then they'll take it home and they'll make something magnificent out of it. It's basically mm -hmm. what I'm doing. But okay. it relies <laughs> on your ability to like to pick. Are you good at picking? And uh, you have to kind of develop this uh, ability to find the gold that's buried in the garbage, so to speak. So you need to know what to look for. Uh, and one of the things to look for is the seams in which the garment is composed of, because the seams will de determine whether it's a viable piece to recycle or not. And those seams are crochet, uh, crochet, what is it called? Chains. They're crochet chains. So if you find the end of the cro crochet chain, you just zip it off and boom, that's like the sleeve that came off. Mm -hmm. And then you find the other seam uh, that connects the, uh, the front piece to the back piece and you zip that off. And if you were to see it, you'd be like, oh my God, I totally recognize this because you're a knitter or mm -hmm. you've done crochet or whatever. I think as, as knitters and crocheters, uh, we have this advantage uh, over, say, like a weaver that had never knit or uh, crocheted a chain before you wouldn't be able to recognize it. So as knitters, I think we we have that advantage. But basically, yeah, you just have to look for what makes it recyclable and what makes it not recyclable and just pass up the things that you can't use, uh, the garbage, and just look for the gold. Because when it comes down to it, I mean, like, have you seen some of my Tumblr posts uh, in which I go sequence, sequence for sequence from the beginning when it's a sweater into it's completely washed into the yarn? I'll send you one. Yeah, send it to me. I haven't. Uh, but I have a black one and a white. Yeah, it, that process kind of takes 
takes me in total with drying time and everything about two days total from unwashed sweater to all the way to washed yarn. It takes about two days. So if it's going to take you two days to do something, it better be this magnificent wool that's in great condition because I'm not going to go through all that trouble for some sweater that's just destroyed. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, it's, it's, it's all about the picking. Are you a good picker? And that will determine your results. And that comes with practice. Gosh, I love that. I don't have TV, but my parents, whenever we'd go to visit them, that was one of their favorite shows. It was one of those picking shows. And and it's fascinating to me. I, I'm a big thrifter and vintage store hunter. I always look for the thing that no one knows that they got. Yeah. And so I can really relate to that that feeling. Probably that feeling of satisfaction when you find it too. Yeah, totally. Totally. There was like pieces that I found that I was just like embarrassing myself with how happy I was getting (laughs) standing (laughs) there at the flea market cheering or whatever. I felt totally ridiculous, but that's how it is. It's when you find gold, it's just like, woohoo, yeah. Yeah. So whenever I've unwound, like frogged something, the different plies, sometimes with different types of yarn, the plying comes undone and... It doesn't hold its shape. Is that something that you find with the fiber you recycle or do you usually try to work with like single ply or? No, as a matter of fact, I kind of stay away from single ply. I don't really like it. I mean, I like single ply if it's like, you know, brand new from like, I don't know, from a a reputable maker of yarn. But in terms of recycled uh, single ply, it's never in any good condition. It's like always destroyed or felted or something like that. All the singles that I've ever found were not worth getting and I've never bought them. It's kind of crazy. But the bulk of the the yarn that I do get is uh, of a multi-strand structure. So it'll be like a two-ply that has three strands of it all held together, if that makes any sense. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I've grown accustomed to working like that or you know I've found some that are actually they look like a single ply but it it's like a deception it was I don't know like a two ply that was held together with a couple of single plies and they just kind of spiraled together to look like a single ply but they weren't really a true single and those held their shape and again in terms of I guess like uh, fiber quality it's all in the pick Mm -hmm. You, you need to be able to look at it and say is this gonna hold together is this damaged in some way was this left in the sun is it brittle you know that kind of thing right right uh that just comes with experience i'll bring um when i know that i'm gonna go and look for sweaters i bring like a a tapestry blunt a blunt needle and i will pull up a stitch on the sweaters like pull up random stitches in different areas to see if if that fat or if that fiber is destroyed or damaged or anything like i'll pull up you know, like an inch worth of yarn from a single stitch just to just to look at it. And that helps mm-hmm. me a lot to determine, you know, for one thing, how many how many strands are being held together if it's a single. It's a better way to look at the yarn without having to unravel the whole thing. Right. So I, I guess that's a tip. Yeah. It's a good tip. That is a good tip. It fits inside my wallet, so I carry it around. <laughs> it, it's, it's still in there, actually, because I totally forgot. But yeah, that's that's in there. Uh, it's all in the mix. That's awesome. All the different hats and, and different garment pieces that you make, in particular, gosh, I love the cowl that you recently did. Are those your own pattern designs that you're creating? Oh, yeah. I don't knit at all from other people's patterns. That's like a thing for me. Is, is I can't, I'm not going to sell something that I didn't design myself. And uh, I think one of the one of the things that, like I talked about when I did my interview with Content Magazine, was that uh, this is all about design. It's not really about knitting. I mean, I have a passion for f- for fiber and everything. That's that's an innate kind of interest for me because I grew up with, in a family of my mom was was a seamstress and her mom was a seamstress and my sister doesn't even care. So so like it kind of just like came to me when it comes to to knitting. It's really about design. It's an opportunity to explore what I want to think about Mm -hmm. because knitting in and of itself is, is, and weaving in the same way too, is it's a grid of stitches. And within that grid, anything can happen. You could create whatever you want. 
and the same goes for graphic design, which is which is something that I was trained in and has I I have like a it has a huge impact on my work, the design process that I learned as a graphic designer. And I apply that to my knitting patterns in the same way that I did it, applied it to say my layouts in InDesign, for example, or my um, illustrations in Illustrator. It's about creating something within a grid structure and a format. The designs that I come up with are really kind of spontaneous. They're sort of like, have you ever done any um, like programming? Like really rudimentary. I'm I'm not saying that I'm like a genius or anything when it comes to coding because I'm not. But the the principles are the same. Like you create this foundation, this framework in which things are supposed to happen, and then you allow the program to run, and all those things happen. In that sense, my work is very spontaneous. I set the foundations of what should be happening, and then allow the knitting to make it to happen. Does that make sense? It's like a program. It makes total sense. In some of my work in progress photos, you'll see that there's little uh, markers. And you can see that there's markers on, on my knitting needles, and I work with circulars. And you'll see these little markers. Well, each of those markers is a line of code. It defines that something needs to happen at that point, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's at the most basic sense. That's what markers do. They mark where something is supposed to happen. The only difference is that my markers move. That's what makes my my hats look the way they do, is that those markers, all of them move. That's mm -hmm. why there's diagonals and things like that. When I program those in my notes, those markers represent what markers typically do, but um, the only difference is that they move, really. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes I kind of sound like crazy person. The way you just described that, at least for me, maybe it's because I work in a tech industry with a bunch of engineers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I've never thought about it that way. One or mm -hmm. zero, binary. Creativity, it's organized chaos. Mm -hmm. Creating something that's unique, but at the same time that there's some kind of order to it. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more about this content magazine piece and and how that kind of came about, what maybe excited you about it? Um, Content Magazine is a local uh, thing here in San Jose. And I had, over the course of, I don't know, what, three years or something like that, I, I, I had met all sorts of people that have worked with Content Magazine who have worked with their creative directors and their graphic designers. And I myself did, did a few layouts for Content Magazine uh, in the past. Daniel Garcia, who is the editor-in-chief of the magazine, if you're looking at the cover... Uh, that cover image, we got together and shot that at, at uh, Daniel's place. And Daniel is in my Instagram feed. He's like in there and he's got like a plaid shirt and he's looking at his white balance monitor, I think. Mm -hmm. um, me and the cultivator working on super secret stuff that you can't see yet. And this was it. This was that cover was what we were working on that day. But yeah, that, that piece, that particular piece is like a 100% silk. It was recycled from um, a sweater dress, uh, Alfani sweater dress. The quality of the silk was just so amazing. It was just so beautiful. And it wasn't like that, that crappy silk that, that stinks. It was like a really high quality silk that had no smell at all. It wasn't damaged or anything. It cost me a dollar. And if I were to sell it, I'd probably ask about a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> something like that because that is that is the piece that took me nine months knitting that thing but it's amazing if I were if I were offered for the piece I probably wouldn't sell it mm -hmm. so I'm just looking at the cover and can you describe to me what kind of piece it is is it like a wrap of some sort yeah or okay it's a triangular scarf uh that measures gosh what is it I think it's nine feet or something like that on the hypotenuse uh, with a central spine of a three-stitch central spine with reversal ribbing that's like kind of um, it's very spontaneous it's very each of those ribs that radiate from the spine they're kind of at, at disparate lengths and it's a very organic look to it. There's this other picture that's inside the the issue itself that that shows like the central spine, and you could sort of see that this that particular design is kind of an evolution of a previous design that I did. Mm -hmm. The one that's on the cover of the magazine is called Render, and it's 
the name comes Photoshop when you do render clouds in Photoshop, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's a reiteration of an old design called duality. Your thought process and motivation and passion behind what you do, it's simple in nature, but it's profound in execution. And I think that it's really amazing. And I'm really excited that we had a chance to talk today about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. The winner of last week's giveaway, sponsored by Stash, is Miss Marty. You've won two skeins of canopy and fingering. Congratulations. Our giveaway this week is sponsored by Monarch Knitting, an adorable local yarn shop based in Pacific Grove, California. One of the favorite yarns of our first guest, Sarah, is Wolf Oak Far, so we're giving away two skeins, plus the Fisherman's Rib Hat Pattern. To enter this giveaway, visit the giveaway post on Instagram, at Wolfel, and tag a friend in the comments. You can also enter by leaving a comment on today's episode's blog post at Wolfel.com. I wanted to make sure and thank today's sponsor again, Tolt Yarn and Wool. With only a few weeks left before Christmas, I couldn't think of a better place to treat yourself or others to some of your favorite fiber finds. The biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode. Anna, Sarah, Jerome, Anne, Melissa, and Barb. I hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn from more fascinating fiber folk. For podcast notes and transcription, visit woeful.com. If you're interested in being a part of this podcast, shoot me an email at hello at Have a great week. 